Welcome to part two of our Georgia-Florida special on the Savage Pads podcast. I'm your host, Doug Battle. Former UGA and current New England Patriots tight end Ben Watson joined us for part one. And former UGA slash Miami Dolphins tight end Arthur Lynch is joining us for part two. After catching dog fans up on his unique journey to the U.S. Army, Arthur will explain why he thinks Georgia fans need to calm down. We'll talk about his 2012 team that won out in the regular season after losing to South Carolina, and we'll discuss what it's going to take for these dogs to do the same, starting with a showdown against Florida. After our Dog Till I Die segment, frequent correspondent Corey Amick will rejoin the show to evaluate Georgia's offense against Kentucky and look ahead at what he's expecting to see from the offense against Florida. Now, before we kick off this episode, I do want to thank you all for participating in our Tailgate Georgia giveaway on Twitter. We were really excited about the response there, and we'll be doing another giveaway soon on behalf of a certain restaurant that is notoriously closed on Sunday. So give us a follow at Savage Pads on Twitter and Instagram, and stay tuned. We've got a great show coming up. Practice every day. Man, oh man, mono ain't mono. He, he's definitely six hour mod being myself, as close as we uh, have right now to rope on. When we scored, I honestly did not know where I was for about five seconds. Early on, you could see with Jake, you know, just like with Fran talking to. Maybe one of the most underappreciated quarterbacks in the country. And we got to keep feeding the running back. I, I don't think we've yet to see the tight ends. I think Georgia does a great job bringing pressure on third down. Turn around two weeks later in the SEC championship, we look like a completely different team, and we made them look like a completely different team. I mean, it's hard to get emotional thinking about it. And it was my job to kind of get outside the corner, and uh, as soon as I let it go, I knew it was good. From that point on, I kind of gained the trust of Eric Murray as my quarterback. The team was just special. I was famous. He was on side. Everybody respects his specs. That's what every Georgia fan should hinge their hopes on. Alabama and Georgia are the best two teams in the country. I feel like we are the true running back team. I have great confidence that we're going to see the personification of Georgia football. All right, now former UGA tight end and current second lieutenant of the U.S. Army, Arthur Lynch, joins the show. Arthur, thank you for joining us. Yeah, man, thanks for, uh, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, of course. Well, first off, Arthur, before we dive into football, can you catch dog fans up on your journey since your time in Athens? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, obviously, I played football at the University of Georgia from uh, 2009 to 2013. Um, I was drafted in 2014 to the Miami Dolphins, uh, right. where I played with that team for a year um, and then bounced around the NFL till 2016. Um, after uh, a short, short a cup of coffee with the Atlanta Falcons in 2016, I um, ended up having a back surgery, uh, dissected me on my L4, L5 uh, disc. Um, that surgery was infected, so I had another surgery shortly after. Um, and then I basically put um, put football in the rear view and started transitioning out of the game and started my application process to uh, officer candidate school um, or officer candidate course, however you want to call it. Um, initially for the Marines, um, the Department of the Navy rejected me three different times uh, for my back injury. Okay. And ultimately, through you know a little bit of luck, um, a lot of persistence, 
and stubbornness, uh, I switched um, from the Marines to the Army, and I commissioned this spring, and I'm going through training here on Fort Benning, and I will most likely be here for an additional six to eight months. Um, when that's all said and done, if uh, fingers crossed, I'll move over to Fort Bragg, North Carolina, um, and hopefully get a platoon, assuming I get all my training done um, successfully. Uh, get a platoon with the 82nd Airborne, um, and that will most likely be, hopefully I'm there with my platoon this time next year. And I don't know how the deployment schedules are um, currently uh, rotating, but um, I know the 82nd Airborne still does, in fact, deploy a good bit. So that's kind of where I'm at right now. I'm, I'm actually back in Georgia, ironically. I've been here now for just over a year because I started basic training here last fall. Okay. And... Um, it's kind of nice. Uh, it, obviously, basic training at OCS was more, I don't want to call it like a prison, but they watch <laughs> over your every move and kind of, <laughs> you don't have much opportunity to make your own decisions. Sure. But obviously, as a commissioned officer, uh, it's a little bit different. So everything's going really well. I enjoy Columbus. Um, but yeah, it's good to be back in Georgia. Uh, I didn't think I would be back uh, living here, especially after I moved back to Boston. But um, it's been, been a fun journey, and I'm, I'm kind of excited to see where it goes. Yeah, and just curious because a lot of the players that I speak with go into broadcast journalism after their NFL careers or, or coaching, something football-related. What led you into the military? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think cynical people um, who uh, would like to say I, I, do it just, I did it just because I want to get into politics one day, but that was honestly – nowhere near in um, in my mindset when doing it. Uh-huh. I think there's two main reasons I think there's two main reasons why I really wanted to do it. Uh, I've I have several close friends that were enlisted guys in the Marines and the Army. Uh, they didn't get the opportunity to go to college right away at eighteen they enlisted and they went and and, and fought a pretty ugly war um, in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. And just hearing um, that, hearing about their experiences, thinking about what they did with their lives at such a young age, while I was basically living out, you know, my the best possible life I could have ever, ever wanted at University of Georgia, playing football, living life in Athens, uh, having a getting a college degree. You know, they were out making sacrifices that a lot of people one didn't care to think about, or really didn't understand the magnitude of what they were doing at such a young age. Um, so for me. Hearing those stories and really understanding like what they went through was, was one reason why I wanted to pay it back to them and to people like them. But really the second reason was a guy named Seth Mullen, who is ironically a politician, but I read an article about him, a Harvard grad. He's from New England, and his mentor was uh, <clears throat> this guy, Reverend Gomes, at Harvard when he was there. And I read this article one day, it was, it was while I was playing with the Miami Dolphins, and I had, I had injured my back, and I was injured reserve. So I was trying to find, um, I realized that football was coming to an end probably faster than I, I anticipated. Sure. So I read this article about him, and it, and it talked about public service. Um, service to your country before you go off and do something you know, for your career. Uh, not, not necessarily selfishly, but something that you wanted to do outside of, of the realms of service right now. He was focusing on the idea of what should I choose um, before I go and, and, and choose like a private sector job like my uh, classmates. This is Seth Mullen now, and he ultimately ultimately chose the Marines. Um, but I I resonated with his idea of Teach of America, uh, um, Peace Corps, AmeriCorps, 
uh, public service, you know, um, whatever it may be, military. And for me, the military was the one that I resonated with, partly because I was hearing all these stories about my friends who had just gotten out of the military and now transitioning to civilian life. And I also felt like I was given a lot of opportunities through football, um, you know, both at the college level and the professional level, that it was kind of my turn to give back. Um, so I love it. I mean, it's it's something that, you know, I don't know if I want to make a career out of it, but I know that if I dedicated four or five years of my life, I won't regret it because I feel like I'll actually have been given something back to to the country, I suppose, but also just you know to to the people who paid it forward for me. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I know I speak for really our country, <laughs> and uh, and telling you that we appreciate you serving our country and, and doing your part in protecting the country's freedom. <laughs> I do want to transition to football, and I know this is so much less significant than than the sacrifices you're making, but I did originally reach out to you because you had tweeted out encouraging Georgia fans to just relax following the debacle against South Carolina. Can you explain to our listeners why you believe this team can still right the ship? Uh, yeah, well, for one, um, it, it's, it's funny, like, because – you know, as a, as a player, you know, as a, as, a, as an athlete, you always think that it's the your world is the most important thing in the world at that time, and that game is the most important thing going on at that time, whether it be high school, Pop Warner, Little League, college, or even the NFL. Uh-huh. And the reality is, sports is such a funny thing, right? Um, unless you're on a team, you can never really fully understand like what it means to be a team what it means to be on that team at that specific moment. Um, and it's, I think coach Bobo did a really good job of, of us is with us was, Oh, he was always saying, you know, ignore the noise. Like what we do within these walls on that field together is our business. It's our goals. And we need to go out together and stay unified and, and work towards those goals. Um, and achieving them. And I think football, college football in particular, unlike anything else, it's so unpredictable. And, it's even even Nick Saban, you know, every, during the national championship years in 2012 when we lost them, I think they lost to like Johnny Manziel at home. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Texas A&M, and mm-hmm. then and Manziel was like throwing like the ball, like he was bouncing off his player players' helmets. He's catching it. It's just <laughs> there's these fluke things that happen. Right. And why we can write the ship is one, we did it two years in a row. LSU, we went 0-2. We ended up going to the SEC Championship game. We ended up getting beaten badly by LSU, but obviously we still had a shot to win the SEC Championship game in 2011. But even more so in 2012, when people compare, um, or I was comparing it to the South Carolina game, because it, it is almost identical besides the fact that the home game is an unranked team, but the idea that, hey, if you look down the barrel of the season and just look at it through the scope of the Georgia football team and ignore everything else that goes on outside the walls of, of Butzmere, mm-hmm. you have an opportunity to win tomorrow in, uh, against Kentucky, right? rest in bye week, and then go into Florida, who's, a, who's a, the 10th team in the country, and then you, you beat Florida in that game, you're, also, you're all, all of a sudden control your own destiny to get to Atlanta. Whoever you play in Atlanta is most likely going to be the top, one of the top two teams in the country. Then all of a sudden you have an opportunity to have a resume where you beat a top ten team in Notre Dame. You've beaten a top ten team in Florida. You've probably beaten a top fifteen team in Auburn, 
and then you beat a top three team and whoever comes out of the West, right? Right. So you're going to tell me that throughout the rest of the college football season, this Georgia team doesn't have an opportunity to be in the top four and then write its own ship to the national championship? I would be, if I were a betting man and they, if Georgia would have went out, I'd bet all the money I have, which probably isn't that much compared <laughs> to some people, but I would, I would bet it out that we'd be the top four team. Now, yes, is that a lot of ifs, ands, or buts? Sure, but at the end of the day, if Georgia wins each week and, and treats each week as of its own little season, mm-hmm then I think they have a great opportunity to ultimately be back in Atlanta and then make, make it to the college football playoff. I can say this from experience that that's exactly what coach Rick and coach Bobo said, well, coach Rick said to our team and coach Bobo said to our offense specifically, was like, you know what? We just had an awful embarrassing loss at South Carolina. I mean, it was ugly. The game was over basically before it began. As soon as that sandstorm played, I knew it was going to be a long, long day. I should look to Aaron when the, when the stadium was shaking, and I was like, hey, this might be a long game. We better, you know, we better uh, hold our jock straps a little bit because it's going right. to get rowdy. And sh- sure enough, it got ugly. Um, yeah. You know, I think, we, I think we fell out of the top ten. We were probably in a worse situation than Georgia is right now. One, because it was the old BCS system, and two, the loss was so damn ugly. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, we, we we were number three going into the SEC championship game, and we were four yards away from ultimately being in the national championship game. Obviously, Alabama ended up winning and, and beating, beating the hell out of Notre Dame. But right. I think people overreact, especially the Georgia fan base at times, because they don't see – they look at everything. It's like a, a, like a, a dumpster on fire, but it's really not the case. Yeah, and it feels like it's been like this, like you said. 2012 was the exact same way. I think last year felt the same way in that when we lost to LSU, fans were beside themselves saying this staff isn't going to be able to get it done. And, and that team also came really within a play of, of making the playoff. Many of our listeners are, are probably thinking to themselves, wow, yes, we can still technically make the playoff if we win out. We aren't likely to do so with this offensive coaching. But that's something else where I think we're quick to forget that many felt Many fans felt exactly the same way about Mike Bobo in 2012. What did Coach Bobo and his coaching staff change after that South Carolina game in 2012? That's a great question. Um, well, so I think I think the first thing that we should acknowledge, though, is that Bobo and those two offenses, the 2012 and even 2013, which we had no business being a record-breaking offense because half of this season, half our offense the whole team was gone. Was hurt. <laughs> Right. But Coach Bobo did an unbelievable job of play of utilizing the playmakers that we had. And we did have a we did have a ton of playmakers. We probably had more playmakers, natural playmakers on those two teams, especially the twenty twelve team, than we have on this team right now. And and that's not the fault of, of this coaching staff. That's just the I mean, you graduated you graduated three thousand yard rushers in the previous two years. I mean, it seems like you have a good, very good quarterback. You have a really good running back, but there's a, so many young receivers, and you know the offensive line is growing together. So it's it's really too much. You know, it's young. It's a, it's very, they're very young, I guess, as an offensive unit besides the quarterback. And usually, it's the opposite. You have a young quarterback and, a, and old um, pieces around him. But what Coach Bobo, I think, did was he so he took. 
he spoke to us very plainly and very honestly after the South Carolina game. He goes, we're going to put all the blame on me. I'm the coach, but we weren't prepared as a unit, and that starts with the coaching staff. From this point forward, we're going to be very meticulous in how we prepare for our opponents. We're going to try to utilize our offensive weapons in a way that benefits the team, not just trying to make the, you know, the players happy about getting touches, meaning we're going to expose the opponents in a way where we can, in a way where no matter who gets the ball, we're going to find the weaknesses in that defense and ultimately make the, uh, make the proper adjustments to make the plays. And I think you'll, you, you saw that as the season went along um, that year, as we started blowing teams out because so many different guys were getting the opportunity to make plays and people were selfless when they weren't getting the ball, that like every single person was coming along and doing very, very well. I mean, Keith Marshall, Todd Gurley, they split carries the entire year. Mm-hmm. You had Marlon Brown, Tavares King, Malcolm Mitchell, all these guys on the edge who were getting different. Chris Conley were getting, um, getting different touches in different ways. Um, myself, you know, I was able to make some plays. So was Jay Rome. And I think that idea of selflessness, um, you know, coming together as a team is something that Coach Bobo really centered his philosophy around, especially after the South Carolina game because everyone was down. And I think the last piece of the puzzle, which um, I don't think Aaron gets enough credit for, is Coach Bobo had a very complex offense, spread the ball around a ton, had to make a ton of checks to the line, and Aaron did an unbelievable job of reading the defense of understanding how to get these dynamic play, uh, playmakers the ball, but made very, very few mistakes despite throwing the ball like 35, 40 times a game. Mm-hmm. I mean, we were, we were throwing the ball a ton. And that's, that's no fault of Jake Fromm. Jake Fromm, Jake Fromm is a very good quarterback, but I think because of the run-heavy system that we've had in the previous years, he has not been asked to throw the ball a ton. So when we do get behind – and the offensive line is asked to pass block and not kind of road grade like they 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 were doing for the previous years for um, Sony Michelle, Nick Chubb, uh, Holyfield, and all those guys. When you when you get behind, you ultimately have to throw the ball to uncomfortable situations. And I think things like last week happen where the, you just don't have enough game game like situations. And that's a testament to the success that Georgia's had. They've been beating the hell out of teams for three years that when they get behind, it's it's just adversity. They have to handle adversity and ultimately get over it and find a way to win. Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned the the maturity that it took for um, that 2012 team to come together and the selflessness that it took for guys to say, hey, it's not about me, it's about the team, and we're going to do what we have to do to make the SEC championship. As a member and a leader on that team that fell to South Carolina and then was able to make it within four yards of a national championship, do you think this Georgia team has the same kind of upperclassman leadership that enabled you all to bounce back with wins over your remaining regular season opponents, including Florida? Yes, 100%. And I think that's a testament to Coach Kobe Smart. I mean, Kobe okay. Smart is a Georgia guy, right? Right. The Georgia boy went to UGA, uh, I'm pretty sure the captain, and now he's the head coach. And he would he would not recruit types of kids that did not possess the leadership qualities that reflect not only the University of Georgia football team, but the university itself. Uh, I think Charlie Warner is a perfect example of that. I think Jake Fromm 
even though he's a junior, he's obviously a leader of this football team. Mm-hmm. And those are two guys that I know are probably rallying around the offense right now and being like, all right, guys, we need to find a way to win each game. I don't care if it's by 30 points. I don't care if it's by one point, as long as we end up with a W at the end of the game. And I would imagine that they're holding those kids accountable on a daily basis. Um, and I look at, I look at the team, you know, the deep, uh, the team as a whole and, you know, added, uh, the leadership starts at the top. And I think Kirby smart has done an incredible job of grooming kids to be those types of leaders, but really recruiting the types of kids to the university. Similar to what coach Rick did is, you know, their talent is matched by their character. And I think, it's one game. I mean, let, let's let's be honest. Like, you, you think Muschamp, who is only coached or in the SEC as head coach at two of Georgia's uh, rivals at Florida and South Carolina. I mean, this was the game of the century for them. Mm-hmm. And uh, my guess is, I've been on teams where we came out flat for a noon game and an unranked opponent where we're favored by like twenty points. Yeah, they probably underestimated South Carolina, and South Carolina got the best of them. And it's it happens. It's okay. I mean, like it's, I know people are freaking out, but at the end of the day, this game will be like a, a blimp, on a blimp in our you know, radar or history, whatever you want to call it. If we're in Atlanta and we beat Alabama or LSU, you know, we're in the top four. And then people are like, Oh, like we freaked out for no reason. If anything, it was a blessing in disguise because it woke us up and, you know, make this re- made us realize that there's so much untapped potential that we need to reach. Yes, absolutely, and in order for us to make it to Atlanta against Alabama or LSU, like it's been for nearly every year of my life and nearly every season that you were at Georgia, the East is going to likely be won or lost in Jacksonville. Going into that game in 2012, it felt a lot for dog fans like how it feels now. Felt like the coaching staff may or may not have what it takes, but the team in a position to compete for a championship. Felt like the players you know, may or may not have the composure to recuperate from an embarrassing loss and take advantage of an opportunity in front of them. I mean, I remember Sean Williams publicly calling out his teammates and there was speculation about the locker room. I'm curious, Arthur, what was going on in that locker room when so much negativity surrounded the program? And how were you all able to overcome on and off the field adversity to defeat a red hot Florida team that also had its eyes set on an SEC championship appearance? Yeah. Okay. So I think to address Sean Williams first, I think the reason, I think the reason why there there was this idea of so much negativity around the program was one. I mean, the media's job is to speculate mm-hmm. on what the the players and the coaches give them in their interviews. I think we knew what type of team we had, um, and I think we were woken up that we weren't that we were not as good as we thought we were and we but we knew we had the potential to be great and when sean williams a guy that said very very little but usually who he was as a person we knew his character was as strong as anyone on the team we knew that he was tough physically and mentally and he was a leader on the defense and he led by led by example so when he spoke up and spoke out we were we were all were like, all right, we need to get our shit together. Uh Um, So if anything, it was more of a motivating factor for us. Um, And that kid was, he plays with his emotions. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't, you won't get much emotional, emotional cues from him off the field, but you know, on the field is where he really shows his emotion. I think that showed in the following game. 
I think what we were able to do um, in terms of kind of regrouping and refocusing is we, had a, we actually had a really tough game against Kentucky, a not very good Kentucky team. We came out of that game on the uh, on the road with a win at night, mm-hmm. came back for the bye week, and when we realized that Florida was undefeated in top four in the country, I think everyone was like, "This is the this is where we can kind of we can show the country that we are a serious contender again." Because I think because prior to the South Carolina game, I think people saw us as a serious contender, and then people after the embarrassing loss um, in Columbia, people were like, "All right, well, this team's a joke." Yeah, they wrote you off. I think we. Yeah, and I think we knew that. So, and that's you know, Coach Rick gave a speech. He's like, "Hey, we control our own destiny if we if we just w- keep each each week as a mini season." And you know, obviously, after what Sean Williams said, and what Coach in the in the meeting that we have with Coach Rick behind closed doors, we realized that hey, we if we win in Jacksonville against the number three team in the country, number two team in the country, we have an opportunity to be a serious contender again. And then if you know some things happen along the way, um, stuff that we can't control, but you know happen tends to happen late in the season um, in the college football, we have a chance to you know play uh, play an Alabama team that's you know most likely going to be undefeated. They weren't undefeated, but um, they were number two in the country we three when we ultimately ultimately played. Um, but I think it was the idea of two things: Sean Williams motivating us when he spoke and spoke publicly, we all listened. Um, we all started taking accountability for one another's actions on and off the field. And, you know, leaders, leaders stepped up. Um, and that, that team was a veteran, veteran football team with a ton of seniors, a ton of juniors with, with guys with tons of experience. And, you know, the coaches let us leave but at the same time, you know, kept a competitive environment throughout the season. And we're like, Hey, no one's, um, no one's above the team. Let's make sure that we come together and if we win each game each week, and we can we can control the controllables, as Coach Bubba would say, you know we'll be right where we need to be in the SEC championship game at the end of the year. And I think this is the same thing rides true for this team. If they just control what they can control, ignore the noise outside, take each week as an individual season, get the win at the end of each week. You know everything else is just you know a lot of BS in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, I certainly hope to see them do that and uh, hope they have the, the composure and mental toughness that you all had in 2012 because it was a, an exciting year for, for Bulldog fans to watch that team bounce back and overcome the odds to put themselves in a position to win a championship. But Arthur, I do need to wrap up this segment. Again, I speak on behalf of all of Dog Nation when I say that we not only appreciate you coming on the show and sharing your thoughts with us, we also appreciate you dedicating your life or the season of your life to serving our country and protecting our freedom. So thank you again for joining us and thank you for your service, Arthur. Yeah, my, my pleasure, man. Thanks for having me. Go dogs. I'll be a dog till I die. Yeah. All right, and now Corey Amick returns to the show to discuss the Georgia offense in a new segment. Corey, before he became OC at Georgia, James Coley had a reputation for spreading the ball out and getting it to his playmakers. And on his first few series as OC against Vanderbilt, he lived up to this reputation. But ever since then, what former Georgia offensive coordinator has he reminded you of at Georgia? I'm going to have to go with none other than you know the big man himself, Jim Chaney, I think. Yes. We're, we're seeing a lot of... Uh, 
Cheney-esque type calls on offense right now with these runs up the middle and a lack of variety in our passing game. So yes. I would say Cheney himself. Yes, and that is why I have named this segment after James Coley's alter ego, Chicka Chicka Slim Cheney. Hi! My name is... What? Yeah, Corey, I heard more boos than ever before at Sanford Stadium due to fans' frustration with Slim Cheney's offense on Saturday. How much of the conservative play calling do you feel was due strictly to the wet and windy conditions on the field? So my first reaction was like less than a quarter of it. I think I had I had way too much hope in somehow seeing our offense transform into like the spread passing attack that right. uses outside runs to allow our playmakers to make plays in space. And um, but I think after the game, I, I swallowed that. And when I heard from people that were on the ground, um, just how bad the weather was, uh, I had to kind of readjust my expectation and I'll take Fromm's word for it talking about how hard of a time he was having gripping the ball um so realistically I'd probably say the weather caused like 60 percent of the conservative play calling right um pardon me but there's also like I think even if it was 65 and sunny it probably wouldn't have looked that much different right it feels like we could go back over the the other games this year and say uh, it was the conditions on the field. Oh, wait, it was perfectly fine outside. So this was the week where we wanted to see a total transformation, a wake-up call, if you will. And unfortunately, it's really hard to know if the offense is going to change after that game because it was probably the smart thing to do to play conservative against an inferior opponent in that kind of weather. Um, something yeah. I saw in the NFL on Sunday was the 49ers and Redskins were tied 0-0 zero to zero at half with two missed field goals, four punts, and 53 combined passing yards at the half. So um, it's hard to judge an offense in those conditions, and it just kind of postponed our judgment of the Georgia offense until probably, I mean, you can't even make an argument that it's not. It's the most important game of the season coming up. But, Corey, I I do want to talk more about James Coley. When he took over as OC for Georgia – he promised to, quote, bring the juice. Corey, what kind of juice has Coach Coley brought to Georgia exactly? At this point, it's like three-week-old water from the bottom of a trash can. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I think, like, we flat-out stink on offense, not talent-wise, but just scheme-wise. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, and with all the hope that we had, um, you know, getting rid of Cheney, and that felt like the biggest victory in the hump we had to get over with to, to take that next step to be a championship-level team. Mm-hmm. Big um, hump we had to get over. We had confidence Coley. Yeah, we had, literally, we had Coley coming in like, all right, this guy's going to sling some, you know, protein-infused pre-workout shake that is going to empower our offense to, to take down Bama. But I think realistically, it's just like opening up cans of four loco and, we're seeing that all over the field right now. Um, okay. So I don't know. I think the juicy promise hasn't hasn't came through yet. Yeah. God, it's like I want to like him and just haven't seen anything that makes me want to endorse him, you know, moving into the future as our offensive coordinator. And in the same vein, in his opening presser as offensive coordinator for Georgia, James Coley also preached his mantra of, quote, players, not plays. Players, not plays. Um, 
maybe not the best mantra for someone whose job is to call plays. Corey, how yeah. do you feel Coley has featured the most talented players on this Georgia offense, and what players do you think can be better featured? He hasn't featured our guys very well. I think mm-hmm. you look at like the drafts, the draft stock of, of Fromm and Swift and a lot of these guys like at the end of last season and how excited people were for like another year of, you know, oh, they're just going to get that much better and we're going to see that much more explosive plays. And, um, you know, I think everyone wants to see DeAndre Swift outside the tackles, making people miss, doing his, you know, jump cut that just Which, breaks lineback- linebackers' ankles. And Yeah, we did see him outside the tackles like – for the first time in what seems like forever on Saturday, um, just a few, yeah, and I feel I mean, like once it's or twice. Only been a handful the entire season. Yeah, right. exactly. And that's um, that's where he thrives. So I don't, and I don't think you know, D. Rob or Kiaris Jackson has had a ball thrown to them, or even like a jet sweep handed off since the Notre Dame game. Um, and then, you know, Jake Fromm, he's being featured by being forced to throw to covered receivers on third and long, and the receivers are being forced to run very easily coverable routes so i think across the board coley just hasn't done a great job of featuring our talent um i think the games that we have won and especially within their damn game we've won just based on talent alone which is scary because when we play teams like florida and and you know hopefully alabama down the road and auburn already this season like the talent gap isn't that big because right. we're all recruiting a similar style player. So I don't want to be relying on talent to, to make those plays happen come those games. Um, but yeah, I would say so far we haven't, we haven't really gotten to see the best of, of what our guys can do. Right. Yeah. The, the players, not plays mentality works against inferior opponents for the most part. There are the outlier games like the South Carolina game. But if you look at Notre Dame from a recruiting standpoint, four years of recruiting for Georgia versus theirs, it's night and day. If you look at Alabama, what's going to differentiate one team from the next is likely going to be the coaching. Um, and obviously the players have to make plays, but coaching is often what differentiates these equally talented teams. We hope to see improvement in the play calling against Kentucky. We didn't. And at this point, we can't say for certain how the offense would have been called with clear conditions. But moving forward, Corey, what's your gut feeling on James Coley and the Georgia offensive staff's upcoming approach to this showdown with Florida? My gut tells me it's going to be conservative. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Kirby's content with a defensive struggle type of game where the final score is like 17-10. I, um, I could kind of see that, too. I, I'm high on our defense. I don't want to use the Kentucky game of like, oh, we had a, we held Kentucky to a shutout. I don't think that's something that I want to use as like a banner for our defense just because the game was, you know, in the worst conditions possible. And right. Kentucky's quarterback played wide receiver like two weeks ago. Right, um, right. So, I, I mean, I'm definitely high on our defense. I think we could hold Florida to, to under three touchdowns. Um, but I don't want to rely on that. And I also don't think that that should impact the way that we call the game offensively. Um, but, I mean, really only time will tell. We can all have our fingers crossed that we come out with some, you know, more spread out sets and, and create more opportunities for our guys. But if we do come out conservative, I think it's just going to be a, a grinded out type of game that's going to have us on the edge of our seats until fourth quarter and hopefully hot rods feeling himself so we can have someone ready to go to to win a game late if we need it that way yeah i'm certainly expecting that kind of grinded out defensive struggle of a game 
Now, if we do get into a game where Florida's offense starts scoring some points more so than we expect, how do you expect Coach Coley and his staff to respond as far as the offensive game plan? You know, I think, as the the famous quote says, we're going to run the damn ball. And Mm -hmm. I think that they're going to keep preaching the, you know, wear the defense down until we do it or until Coley decides we should run our two-minute offense that scores at will. Uh, yeah. So, you know, I don't know. I I do see us going into the third quarter, and if we're down, I think we'll keep running the ball, and our, eventually our offensive line will just break down the, the front seven or so for, for Florida. But at the same time, you know, how much damage can be done up until that point to where the defense finally wears down, you know, how – how deep in a hole can we can we get before we actually start either to to take over the game that way or for you know Coley to just turn the switch on and let Fromm air it out and actually run some routes to help him out. So I don't know. I definitely I feel like we're gonna be conservative regardless, but it'll be interesting to see how the team responds in the second half, um, depending on where the game's at. Yeah. Yeah, I certainly don't have confidence that we're really gonna open it up and in any circumstance like you were saying but we forget that we've seen Georgia turn things around before and last year is a perfect example as Georgia followed a 16 point offensive showing against LSU with 36 points and a win over Florida Corey if if Georgia's going to score this kind of uh, point total against Florida what have you seen from Todd Grantham's Florida defense as far as their strengths as a unit and what weaknesses must Georgia exploit to come out of Gainesville with a win so yeah a lot can change over the next few weeks um, since there is a bye for both teams right before this this next game but with Florida's key pass rushers out as of right now um, you know I do I do see us having an advantage in a couple of ways I think that from is going to have plenty of time to, to sit back and scan the field and go through his progressions to find open receivers if we can get them open. Um, so, I mean, that's the big question is whether or not anyone will actually be able to create that separation against Florida's uh, back four. But DBU. knowing that Fromm should at least have the time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> knowing that Fromm should at least have the time to, to do that should encourage a lot of fans when it comes to seeing our passing game maybe explode again with Florida's front four being limited that helps our run game big time I think their two end rushers being out should allow us to get the ball outside from the backfield so I would love to see some sweeps or something to the outside just to expose that edge rush on their end Mm because I think our tackles can easily hold that edge and and open it up for you know Harry and Swift to get outside um so I'm, I'm feeling good about those ways to take advantage of their defense. I don't think LSU is a good litmus test that we should use to judge Florida's secondary since LSU is just, I mean, torching everyone gassed up right now. And yeah. I mean, yeah, they're just, they're on fire. So I think they do have some standout dudes um, in the back four. One thing I noticed against Florida's defense this year, both with like Kentucky when uh, Sawyer was in a quarterback before he got hurt. And then obviously LSU kind of shredded them, but any type of crossing routes in the middle, um, like that's where Florida's struggling. So I would love to see the ball get thrown to the middle of the field and see if we can catch Florida off guard there, especially if they're packing the box. Um, yeah, I think the last thing, probably the most important, is that, you know, RIP Britton Cox's Florida career thus far, not going to be playing this game. So 
I think that probably hurts us more than them since he can't get like a, a stupid personal foul yes. penalty. But right. you know, it is it is good to know Brenton Cox will not be playing. Yes. Also, R.I.P. Felipe Franks versus Georgia rivalry um, because that was what I was looking forward to of most anything this season was Georgia's defense against Felipe, and it will be prolonged at least a year. He may transfer out though, but we will not get to see that one. And we wish him the best in his recovery. Um, in all seriousness, but in all kiddingness, yes. we wish he was out there. Well, this isn't kidding. Oh, we so do bad. wish he was out there so bad, um, but the reason why is, isn't as much like for his well-being as our hoping that he gets better, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. But, Corey, as always, yeah. pleasure having you on here. Looking forward to hopefully seeing some of those outside runs you were talking about against Florida. And, man, this is – this is a big one, so we're we're gonna be uh, you know rooting hard here from Alabama. Hope you'll be rooting hard over there from Texas. Yeah, dude, that sounds good. And you know, go dogs. <laughs> go dogs, Corey. And that wraps up part two of our Georgia Florida special. If you haven't yet, make sure to go back and listen to part one. We had a great interview with New England Patriots tight end and maybe future president Benjamin Watson. Um, and stay tuned next week for part three, potentially part four. Got some exciting interviews coming up. Appreciate you guys listening. Thanks again. Go dogs.